Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the third chapter, and we will be looking this morning at John chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. We cannot understand, we cannot see, we cannot hear, we cannot believe. Our bodies cannot preach or listen. Father, we are entirely dependent upon you. And we pause right now to wait upon you. To confess our desperate need for you. And to claim the promise that you work for those who wait for you. Father, I pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon us this morning. Give me strength, clarity of thought, words, wisdom, to preach your Word in a way that would make clear the truth, that would honor your Son. And Father, work in our ears and our eyes and our hearts so that we would hear and see and most of all that we would believe this morning. Father, I pray that you would come and do that work. That your Holy Spirit would be poured out and produce faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that as you entered here this morning that you were seeking the kingdom of God because Jesus has told us to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And if you were to go around the world this morning, you would find a multitude of different ways that people in different places are trying to find salvation and enter the kingdom. And the question that people in every land are asking is, how can we have pure hearts? How can we have cleansing from our sins? How can we enter into God's presence and have salvation? Today marks a little past the halfway point of the month of Ramadan, which is the holy month for Muslims, for those who follow Islam. And for approximately 30 days, they fast from sunrise to sunset. And that's part of the five pillars of Islam. They recite their creed, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. They pray during five set times each day. They give alms out of obligation, out of voluntary, to the poor. They fast, especially during this month. And they make a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in their lifetime. And when Muslims go to pray, they go through a cleansing ritual with water. In some places, a Muslim man might wash himself three times, beginning with his hands to his wrists. Then he rinses out his mouth with water. He sniffs water into his nostrils to cleanse them. He washes his face, then his arms up to his elbows, and he finishes with both of his ears, and he washes his feet. And our guest this morning was telling us Friday night about a a man or some men that he was speaking to about this cleansing ritual, that they make themselves pure before praying to the Lord. And he asked the question, but how do you cleanse your heart? And there was dead silence. They knew how to wash their mouths and their hands and their feet, but they didn't know how to have a clean heart before the Lord. And that is the main issue. How do we cleanse our hearts? Well, Muslims aren't alone in seeking purity. There are millions in the world who think that their souls can find enlightenment through right thinking and self-denial. There are Christians who preach the, or supposedly Christians who preach the power of positive thinking. 
There are those who are deceived by forms of animism in which they try to placate gods through ritual sacrifices of animals and prayers. There are Christians who wear, supposedly Christians, who wear superstitious trinkets and repeat mindless prayers to Mary and other saints. And the Jews in Jesus' day were under the impression that every Jew, except for those who were explicitly wicked, would find entrance into the kingdom of God simply by virtue of being Jewish. And there are those who view truth as a smorgasbord. In college, the popular view was that reality is like a wheel. And we're all living on the outside of the wheel, and God is at the center, and heaven is at the center, and all religious views are merely spokes, different but equal paths to the center of truth. Well, what we're going to find out today is that Jesus believes no such thing. Jesus is going to claim for Himself and His teaching exclusivity. Jesus will claim that He has the unique and unchallenged ability to declare truth to us. And He is going to claim this morning that through His death on the cross is the only way that we can be saved. We saw last week that there is only one way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. According to Jesus, the only way to enter the kingdom of God, the only way to enter into the presence of God, the only way to be purified from your sins, is to have what He characterized as a new birth, a birth from above. To enter into God's kingdom, you must have a change in your nature that is so radical, it can only be characterized as a new birth. Through the purification ritual of outer washing with water, whether baptism or for a Muslim before prayer, meditation or positive thinking, through self-denial or giving to the poor or repeating prayers mindlessly, none of these things, according to Jesus, will get you into the kingdom of God. Rather, new birth is accomplished by God's Spirit being poured out upon us into our hearts so that He takes out our old sinful flesh, stone heart and He gives us a heart of flesh. And He changes our will and our desire so that we want to walk according to His Word and we repent of our sinful ways and ultimately we will see we put our whole trust in Jesus Christ lifted up on a cross. That is what Jesus had just finished explaining to this man Nicodemus who came to him at night and confessed him to be a great teacher who had come from God. And now for the second time in verse 9, Nicodemus questions what Jesus has taught. He says in astonishment, how can these things be? Nicodemus does not find it believable that what Jesus has taught is true. And so he's astonished at what Jesus has taught. He, he finds it to be to him a new requirement, a new condition to enter the kingdom. And he doesn't know how to respond except with unbelief. And Jesus responds to the astonishment of Nicodemus with his own astonishment. Jesus answers, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? In other words, Jesus says, Don't be astonished that you're required to be born again to enter the kingdom. Be astonished that you're the teacher of Israel. You've studied the scripture. And you don't understand this. That's what's astonishing. The requirement for new birth is not amazing. Ignorance of that requirement is amazing. At least for someone who's studied the Old Testament. And I think most people around the world 
who are trying for their rituals to purify themselves realize that you cannot approach God unclean and you need to be cleansed. But if, as the Jews did with their sacrifices, we have to repeat these rituals year after year, month after month, day after day, prayer time after prayer time, it should send us the message that these rituals aren't working. We need a one-time act, a new birth to cleanse us. As a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus would have been a student of Moses and the prophets, and he should have understood this. If there's anything taught in the Old Testament, it is you have to be pure to be part of God's people. And likewise, in verse 11, Jesus says, You do not receive our testimony. Nicodemus' failure is not a failure of the brains. It's a failure of the spirit. He has rejected Jesus' teaching. He's rejected what God has revealed and what he has studied. And so I find two observations here. First of all, ignorance of spiritual truth is a result of ignorance of the Scripture. Nicodemus studied the Scripture, but he was still ignorant of the Scripture. He didn't understand the Scripture. And that's why he's ignorant of spiritual truth. If you don't realize spiritual truth, truths about the kingdom of God, it's because you haven't studied the Bible. That is where spiritual truth is found. And a second thing we should see from Nicodemus is this. Apart from God's gracious intervention... What makes sense to us spiritually is normally wrong. Apart from God's gracious intervention, what makes sense to us is normally wrong. Nicodemus' response is, this doesn't make sense. How can this be? I've studied the scripture my whole life. How can you say that I must be born again? It doesn't make sense to him. Spiritual truth in the end is not a matter of common sense. Because what is common to man? Romans chapter 3 says, There is none righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are born dead in our sins. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that in our unsaved condition, the God of this world has blinded our eyes. If that is the common condition, what will common sense be? Not truth. So spiritual truth is not a matter of standing around saying, well, this makes sense to me. It's a matter of seeing what God's Word says. And so we need to reject, fly by the seat of the pants, shoot from the hip theologians or pastors or Sunday school teachers who simply throw out common sense platitudes and mix in a Bible verse or two for good measure. Bible teaching is not about what we think. So we reject Bible study methodologies that say, read the verse, go around the room and ask everybody, what do you think? Who cares what Nicodemus thinks? Our quest is for what God's Word says. The matter of truth is not a matter of what sounds good, but of what God says. And from this I draw two more observations or applications. First of all, we should keep the teaching of God's Word central to our life and ministry. Even though Nicodemus didn't understand the Scripture, we should keep going back to the Scripture as the source of our truth. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again. How does new birth come? Through the living and abiding Word of God. The instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to give us new birth is the Word of God. There is no spiritual life outside of God's Word. And so we need to keep teaching it. But what Nicodemus also shows us is, 
We should pray for the Lord to enable people to understand. Nicodemus would have been a student of Scripture. He was the teacher of Israel, but he didn't understand. We need to pray that God's Spirit would enable people to understand His Word. And therefore, we should expect God to humble and to throw into confusion any pastor or church or ministry or person who prides themselves on their learning and their teaching but does not pray. If we think that we can go into a sermon or a Bible study or that we can do evangelism and we don't stop to pray, it might be because we're confident in our teaching abilities. Because we're confident in the way that we've learned to lay out the plan of salvation. We've become confident in our program. And so we think we don't need to stop to pray. We don't need to gather to pray. Because we'll just do this and results will come. You can give people God's word until you're blue in the face. But if God doesn't work, they stay dead. And so we need to pray. Nicodemus was a student of the Scripture, but if he was not born from above, he would never understand how these things could be. Well, Jesus doesn't exactly answer Nicodemus' question, and he doesn't pause for Nicodemus to answer his question. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? It's more of a rhetorical question. He's pointing out the great hypocrisy of a teacher not understanding his subject matter. And what we'll see in here is that Jesus takes the place of being the superior rabbi. Jesus is the superior teacher. What you'll see in the flow of this argument is, Nicodemus is introduced as a Pharisee and a ruler, and he starts off the conversation, but as the passage moves along, Nicodemus keeps saying less, and Jesus keeps saying more, and at this point, Nicodemus drops entirely out of the picture, and Jesus just takes over and does all the teaching, putting on a clinic in kingdom theology. Jesus has chided Nicodemus, so you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand? And now he appears to mock Nicodemus' language. You remember when Nicodemus approached Jesus in verse 2, he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. He speaks in the plural. He says, we. Now, it's debated what he refers to. Nicodemus could have brought with him a, a group of students, which would make this particularly embarrassing as he gets schooled in front of his school. Nicodemus could have been sent as a representative of the Pharisees or the Jewish rulers. And this could be taken positive or negative depending on how you read it. It could be negative. We know that you're a teacher come from God. However, we want to point out to you. And we is used as a sort of safety in numbers technique to give, give, uh, give more strength to their arguments. Or it could be that they're coming as a group pleased with Jesus. And they expect Jesus to congratulate them. We know that you're a, you're a teacher come from God. Look what we have discovered. We've come to see the truth about you, Jesus. Or it could be there's no we at all. Nicodemus just could be using we because he's scared to speak for himself. And that's what sometimes people do. They say we when they mean themselves. Whatever the case may be, Jesus responds in kind. Nicodemus has said, We know that you are a teacher come from God. And Jesus replies, Well, we know one or two things too. He might be speaking to, referring to him and his father. John 3, 34, we see that he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So Jesus might be using we to say, I'm speaking for me and the Father. The whole Godhead speaks in me. 
At the same time, I think we're seeing Jesus' sarcastic side. The rabbi comes saying, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. And Jesus says, well, here's what we know. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And we bear witness to what we have seen. But you, plural, the whole group of you, don't receive what we teach. I think Nicodemus probably expected Jesus to congratulate him on his discovery. He probably expected Jesus to say, well, that's great. How wonderful you and your other friends must be that you all have come to see that I'm a teacher come from God. What's happened so far here? Jesus is condemning Nicodemus. Nicodemus approached Jesus and confessed his greatness as a teacher. You are a teacher that came from God. And then what did Jesus do? Jesus did what you should expect a teacher to do. He started teaching. He started teaching what a a teacher come from God should know. A teacher who's come from God would have first-hand knowledge. So Jesus says in verse 11, we speak of what we know. And a teacher who has come from God was once with God. So he would have first-hand witness of what? Of kingdom realities. And so Jesus says, we speak, we bear testimony, of, we bear witness to what we have seen. Jesus is talking about what he has first-hand knowledge of as a teacher come from God. The requirement for spiritual rebirth. And how has Nicodemus responded to the teaching of the teacher come from God. Jesus says, you, plural, all of you, do not receive our testimony. In other words, you come to me boasting that you have seen that I'm a teacher come from God, and then when I start teaching, the only thing you do is question me. You approach me and say, you're a teacher come from God. And then when I teach, you say, how can these things be? Can a man go into his mother's womb? How can these things be? This is incredible. We can't believe this teaching. Well, do you think I'm a great teacher come from God? Or do you not? That's what Jesus is saying. Imagine this. We have a number of engineers in our congregation who work for Rockwell Collins. And imagine that when perhaps you are working for another engineering firm, Rockwell Collins approached you. And the head of the administration over the whole company came to you and said, We are looking for a new engineer to head up a particular program at Rockwell. And we have searched around the globe for an engineer. We have gone through thousands of resumes and portfolios. We have interviewed hundreds of applicants. And we have come to see this. We know that you are the greatest engineer that is in the field today. You are an engineer come from God. Because no one can do the engineering that you do. And so, you take this position as an engineer at Rockwell, and immediately, upon making your first recommendation as the head engineer, the company says, how can that be? Do you really expect that to work? How can that happen? That's not possible. What would you assume about the words of praise that Rockwell had spoken to you when they were trying to get you to come to their company? You would assume they didn't mean a word of what they said. If they really thought you were the greatest engineer in the world, they would follow your engineering advice. You would understand that their praise was spurious and false and bogus and fake. And here Jesus condemns Nicodemus' confession 
as a spurious, false, bogus, fake confession. He came praising Jesus as a teacher come from God, and then he did nothing but question his teaching. There's a lesson here. Jesus rejects false faith. Jesus cannot be flattered by your kind words about him. When Muslims say that Jesus was a great prophet, Jesus is not flattered if they don't believe who he claimed to be. Therefore, do not confess Jesus if you will not believe and obey Jesus. Do not confess Jesus because we live in a quote-unquote Christian culture and you want to fit in. If you're not going to take Jesus at his word, take up your cross and follow him, don't confess him. Because he sees through it and he rejects it. Furthermore, do not credit Jesus with being a remarkable, spiritual, godly teacher if you are not going to believe and obey what he says. Jesus says in John chapter 8 to the Jews who profess to believe in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you are not willing to abide in Jesus' teaching, then you're not his disciples. Even if you call him a great teacher. If you think he's a great teacher, follow and believe everything he teaches or throw him away. It would be better not to know the truth at all than to confess a part of the truth and fail to live according to it. A man who murders another man is sinning. But a man who says murder is wrong and then goes and murders another man is twice as guilty because he knew the truth, he confessed the truth, and then he lived opposite the truth. We're going to sing this morning about surveying the wondrous cross and that it humbles us and causes us to pour contempt on all our pride. If you're going to boast in your works... Don't sing about the great cross this morning. The youth stood up here last week, and what did they sing? Glory, glory, He reigns. And if those youth went home, youth, and you disobeyed your mother or father, and you refused to live under the teaching of Jesus Christ, God was not impressed with singing, He reigns, if you don't want to live under His reign. We're Baptists. We spoke this morning in my Sunday school class about Baptists being a people of the book. And we like to boast about how we're not like the Roman Catholics who follow the Pope. We're not like the Episcopalians who follow their reason and their tradition. We believe in the Bible alone. And we put it in our confession of faith. But Jesus is not impressed with that confession if when that word is taught we say, no thanks. We've found a better way. We should not confess what we're not willing to follow. Perhaps you're not a Christian this morning but you think highly of Jesus. Maybe like the Muslims, you think that Jesus was a great prophet. Maybe you think that Jesus was one of the great spiritual teachers who has come to earth, and along with many other spiritual teachers, shows us the way. Perhaps you're an atheist this morning, and you confess that Jesus was a good moral teacher, and humanity would do well to follow His teaching. Jesus does not want any of those options, and He refuses to take any of those options. Jesus makes demands and claims about Himself, about being the only way, the truth, the life, that if you want to get to the Father, you must come through Him. Jesus is not impressed with compliments. 
that aren't followed through. Jesus condemns these confessions like He condemns Nicodemus' confession. You cannot follow Jesus and someone else. You must follow Jesus alone. To call Him a good teacher and then to say that He lied about His claim to be God is to deny that He was a good teacher because good teachers don't lie. To say that He's a teacher come from God and then to say, I don't understand how your teaching could be true is to deny that He's come from God. If you believe that Jesus is a great teacher that God sent then believe what He says and all of it, or dismiss it all. Jesus continues in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, Nicodemus' goal in coming to Jesus might have been this. He might have thought that as a teacher himself, coming at night, confessing Jesus to be a teacher come from God, that Jesus was going to give him some special insight. Jesus was going to make Nicodemus privy to some of the the deep secrets of what life would be like in the coming kingdom. What's it going to be like under the rule of the Messiah? Give me some details that haven't been revealed yet, Jesus. And Jesus says, look, I've told you earthly things and you won't listen to me. What makes you think you're going to listen to me if I tell you heavenly things? Some people think earthly things refer to Jesus' analogies of human birth and the wind. But Nicodemus didn't deny that people were physically born. He didn't deny that there was wind. Nicodemus isn't, Jesus isn't talking about physical earthly things. I think what he's talking about when he says, I've told you earthly things, is I've told you about what needs to happen here on earth before the kingdom comes. I've told you elementary doctrine. I've told you the simple starting place of the kingdom. You must be born again. And if you deny the elementary doctrine, if you deny the simple teaching of what has to happen on earth, you must be born again, how are you going to comprehend and understand if I tell you the mysteries of the kingdom to come? There's a lesson there too. I'm amazed. I'm amazed by the millions of copies of the Left Behind series on the end times that have been sold, much of which is speculation about what's going to happen. And people, millions of people in churches today can sit around and discuss speculations about the coming of Christ at the end. But they can't write out for you a simple explanation of the gospel or atonement, or justification by faith. And these are the elementary principles. We live in an age that loves to speculate while being ignorant of the bare, minimal truths of the kingdom. And that is to our shame if we entertain that to attract people. This is not to say that Jesus couldn't expound on the glories of the coming kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus says something remarkable here. Jesus claims here that He is the only teacher who is ultimately and finally authorized and able to teach about spiritual truth. It's an amazing claim. Judaism was fond of circulating stories about saints and Jewish heroes who would be assumed bodily up into heaven and they would look around, they would learn things and they would come back to earth with a message. And Moses was their particular favorite. And Jesus says to Nicodemus this, Look, 
No one has ascended into heaven except Him who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, which is Jesus' title for Himself. No one has ascended into heaven except Him who descended from heaven. Now that is not to deny that Enoch walked with God and he was not, or that a chariot came down and picked up Elijah and so on and so forth. But this is to say, what does it mean that Jesus says no one has ascended into heaven? I think what he means is no one has gone into heaven and has had such a permanent education there that he is authorized to come back down to earth and tell you about the kingdom. No one has done that except, but only, Him who descended from heaven. And when Jesus says that He descended from heaven, what He means is, I didn't have to ascend into heaven to get knowledge about heaven. Heaven was my starting place. It's where I began. I descended from there. I came from there. It's my first home. If anyone is authorized to tell you about the kingdom, it's me. Because I came from heaven. Therefore, no one else has the authority of Jesus to speak to kingdom realities. This means that Jesus is the only one who descended from heaven and therefore He has ultimate authority to speak about kingdom realities. This means Jesus is uniquely gifted like no other person in history to teach about kingdom realities. Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who with final and full authority can tell you about God and the kingdom, because that's where I came from. After all, He is the Word who was in the beginning and who was with God and who came from God and who was God and became flesh and dwelt among us. What application does that have for us as a Christian? Here's where we are not popular in the world today. We must judge all claims to spiritual reality by the teaching of Jesus as recorded in the pages of His Word. Jesus was the supreme teacher who came from heaven and He taught about the kingdom of heaven. And He taught His apostles about the kingdom. And then when He went back up into heaven, He sent His Holy Spirit to teach His disciples and to bring to their memory what He said. And then His disciples wrote down in a book what Jesus had taught them in the Gospels, and they applied it in their letters to the churches. And so this is the teaching of Jesus that we are to teach all nations to obey. This is our standard and the only standard for truth. And that means we judge the teaching of anyone and anything else by the standard of the Bible. And that's why I say we cannot call Jesus a good teacher and then reject Him because we want a little bit of somebody else's teaching to round out where Jesus might have been wrong. Jesus insists He is the great and final standard of truth about heaven. And therefore, if Muhammad claims that he went into a cave and received a heavenly revelation, if Buddha claims to have discovered the path to nirvana, if the Dalai Lama tours the country teaching on spiritual realities, if Joseph Smith claims to receive golden tablets from the angel Moroni, if the Pope issues a, an, an official statement from the cathedral, 
If a group of peasants in South America claim that they've seen the Virgin Mary and she's given them a message, if a woman has a vision from an angel and says that she's been embraced by the light, if a man claims to die and says he spent 90 minutes in heaven, if a man claims that Jesus came into his bedroom and took him on a deep space tour of heaven, if an angel appears to your dear aunt and gives her a message for you, or if your Sunday school teacher claims to have some special leading from God, then the response is all the time, how does this compare to what Jesus has said. And if it contradicts what Jesus has said, then it is wrong. Because only Jesus has descended from heaven. And so only He can speak about the realities of heaven. And so Jesus is the supreme and final authority on heavenly, spiritual, and kingdom realities. And so there are only two choices that Jesus gives us. We can embrace Jesus' message and all of it, Or we can reject Jesus' message and all of it. But there is no middle ground with Jesus. He makes an exclusive claim. And Jesus uses this title as the Son of Man to transition, to tell us how we can be pure, to tell us how it can be that we can be born again. And so if you're asking the question that Nicodemus asked, how can this be? How can I be born again? Jesus is going to give you the answer now in verses 14 and 15. Jesus refers to Moses. In Numbers chapter 21, the people of Israel were in the wilderness and they started to grumble about the Lord. They said, what would you do? Did the Lord bring us out here in the wilderness to kill us? And the Lord does not like it when His people grumble. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents into their camp and the serpents began to bite people and those who were bit were dying from their snake bites. And the people say, we've sinned. We've done wrong. Moses, go pray to the Lord and ask Him to please remove these serpents from us. And so Moses goes and he prays to the Lord and the Lord says, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten... When he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a serpent out of bronze and he set it on a pole. And we read that if a serpent, if a serpent bit anyone, that man would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. Now we don't know exactly how that was supposed to work. It might have been the bronze serpent was pierced by the pole and we see the curse dead. And you look up and you see that God conquered the curse. It might be the serpent was on the pole. And here is your curse, the serpents, out of your reach. It can't harm you up there. But whatever it was, they were redeemed from their curse. Their curse for grumbling was fiery serpents. And they are redeemed from the curse by looking at the curse lifted up. The bronze serpent on a pole. And Jesus says... In the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In John 12, when Jesus speaks of Himself being lifted up, John tells us He said this to indicate the kind of death by which He would die. That's how Jesus died. They had a crossbeam of wood and they nailed His hands to it. And then they hoisted that crossbeam up onto an upright beam and they they nailed His feet to the bottom of that beam. And he was lifted up and he hung there outside the city walls in the hot sun until he was dead. He was crucified, nailed to a cross, and he was lifted up and he died. And Jesus says, 
just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Just as the Israelites looked at the serpent on the stick and they were saved from the curse, whoever looks at Jesus on the cross and believes in Him, that means they believe in His historical truth that He was crucified and risen, and it means that they put all of their hope, the only thing they hope in for salvation is Jesus crucified and risen. Whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. That, Nicodemus, is how you are born again. That is how you see and you enter the kingdom. You look at Jesus, the crucified Messiah, and you believe. And you get now eternal life. Well, how does this work? I've told you that the fiery serpents were a curse for the people's sin. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 21... We read that a man who is hung on a tree is under a curse from God. To be nailed to a cross and to be left there was to be cursed by God. And our curse was because in the Garden of Eden, a fiery serpent, so to speak, came into the camp and tempted Adam and Eve and they disobeyed God. And the Lord said, because you've disobeyed my word, you must die. And they were kicked out of the Lord's presence. And human beings die physically and spiritually. Our bodies die and our souls and our raised bodies one day will go to hell because we have sinned against God. That's our curse. Death is the curse. And here's what Paul says in Galatians 3. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. If you think that by your good works and your rituals you can be saved, you rely on works of the law, you are under a curse because you do not obey them perfectly. But then he goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, Paul says, He became a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Paul's message is, you cannot be saved by your works. Instead, the Son of Man was lifted up, and He became a curse. The wrath and the death and the hell and the punishment of God that we deserve for our sins was poured out on Jesus when He was lifted up, when He was crucified. And it is not by your works, but it is available to Jew or Gentile, to all the nations of the earth. Anyone who will listen to this message, who will see Jesus lifted up, and who will believe, who will say to God, I'm a sinner, and Christ died for me, and was raised from the dead, be merciful to me, save me, I trust in Christ alone, that person will receive the blessing of Abraham. They will receive the promises of covenant salvation. The, pour, the Spirit will be poured out into their hearts. They will be washed clean and they will be saved. And so if you sit here this morning and you ask the question, how can I be pure? How can it be that I could be born again? Listen, Jesus is the only one who can teach you. And Jesus has said 
that eternal life comes to those, not who work, but to those who believe in Him. And that is my invitation and exhortation to you this morning. Listen to Jesus. Look at Jesus crucified for your sins and believe in Him. And you will have eternal life. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, there is nothing better to do but to survey, to look at that wondrous cross. Oh, Father, I pray that as we sing now, as we look at a representation of that actual cross, as we reflect on what Jesus has taught, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would come and work. Please make us believe this and bank all of our hope on this. Teach us to pour contempt on all of our pride, to boast in nothing except Jesus crucified. Oh, Father, do this work. In Jesus' name, amen.